Amen. Well, it's good to be with you. Uh, my name is Sam Caston Smith, and uh, this will be my, my third time that I've been invited to preach at Rio. So thank you. I've, I've been a member here, kind of, sort of, intern anyway, since January. And I just want to say I love this church. And I, and I love the, the warmth and the, welcome, the welcoming that me and my family have received here. Um, and Ryan, before you get too far off stage... I'd like for you to come out and play. I'm going to start my sermon with an interpretive dance. <laughs> I said that in the first sermon so I could see Tom's reaction, but I don't understand why y'all laugh. It must be my physique that gives me away as not a dancer or the fact that I have to move my love handle to turn my mic on. That might be it. <laughs> Sorry, Laura. I promise no fat jokes. All right. Anyway, our sermon text today, it's, it's coming from a very familiar place. And Pastor Tom has preached on this uh, as we've gone through Leverage Your Life, and it's coming from Luke 9. So I feel like I'm going into copyright infringement when I say this. But if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, uh, take them out and turn to Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. And this is the passage, just to give you a heads up, where Jesus comes and he's telling his people that in order to gain life, you have to lose it, that you have to take up your cross and follow him. And as you're you're going to that passage, I want to tell you a story about a guy named Charles Blondin. And Charles Blondin, in, in the 1800s, uh, was an acrobat. Late 1800s, he's an acrobat from Europe, came over to America to make a name for himself. And he gets here and he thinks, what could I do that would get me fame? So he comes up with a scheme and he takes a three-inch cable, stretches it over the 1,100-foot gorge of Niagara Falls, and he walks across it. And everybody's sitting there waiting the whole time, knowing this guy's going to fall and die. And everyone's waiting. And when he gets across... They're amazed. And word of this spreads, and he begins to appear in newspapers all over the nation. Well, the problem is, once you do something that amazing, there's only one way to top it. you got to add to it and to do crazy things. So the next time he comes out, he goes across the same tightrope blindfolded. Then he comes out, and he's in a sack, and he goes across it. Then he comes out, and he does it on stilts. you imagine that? going across a tightrope on stilts. And the next time he comes out and he brings a chair and he turns the chair on two legs, gets on top of the chair and stands with the chair's legs balancing on this tightrope. And everybody thinks this guy is absolutely amazing. He never falls. So the next time he's coming to the the waterfall and his legend have it, he's taking this old wheelbarrow and he's carrying it and he's walking to get on the tightrope. And as he's going through the crowds, the crowds are all going bananas. You can do it, the amazing blonde. And we have here's one guy says, we have faith in you. And he stops. And as legend has it, he turns, looks at the guy and says, you have faith in me? Hop in. (laughs) There's a big difference between believing somebody can do something and placing everything you have, your life, inside that wheelbarrow. And this what we've been talking about through this Leverage Your Life series, like Tom has said again and again, that you take your life, your time, time, your talent, your treasure, you put it in the bag, you pull the bag up, do the bow, you thought you were done with that phrase, didn't you? Pull the bag up over, you hop it over to the feet of Jesus, deposit it. And what I'm hoping you guys see today, the transfiguration, which comes right after everything we've been talking about, The transfiguration is the big shiny bow on that bag. It's a beautiful, beautiful story. When I get done with the sermon, I want want you to have walked away with this main message. Your God is so beautiful, so amazing, so glorious, so holy, so loving, Your story with that God is so amazing, so undeserved, mind-bogglingly so, that when you look at his call 
to suffer for his sake in this life. Everything you could lose here is absolute sewage by comparison. Three things, three principles I want you to leave with. First, you're going to suffer. But invest your sufferings in Christ. Second, I want you to see that you can find joy in your sufferings by focusing on his beauty. And last, and this is the most amazing of all, if you will share in Christ's sufferings, then he calls you to share and his glory. So Luke chapter 9, verse 23 and 24, it says this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it or save it. And this is the idea. Suffering means loss of something. To be sick is to have the loss of your health. To die is to lose your life. To be poor is to lose wealth. Suffering is loss. And Jesus is saying, live in a way where you lose everything for the sake of gaining me. And we hear that, and our instinct is to go, "Mm, not the best sales pitch to sign me up for Christianity. (laughs) Carry my cross? Mm, No thanks. I'm fine where I'm at. Suffering is beautiful. You know, every system in the world, every religion, every philosophy comes and admits one thing. Commonly. We all have this in common. The atheist, the Buddhist, the Hindu. We all have this in common that the world is broken. The world hurts. The world's painful. There's suffering. It's hard. And every different belief system comes to that truth with a different solution. So the Hindu comes to that problem and says, your suffering is a result of your past life. The Buddhist comes to it and says, your suffering's merely an illusion. There's no such thing as genuine pain. Just believe. There's no pain. The atheist... The Muslim believes that your suffering is vengeance from God, that that this is somehow punishment. And, And the atheist comes and says, the world is just godless. It's random. There's no rhyme or reason for your suffering. Just bear it. Deal with it. Be as happy as you can. Live for the world and die. You know, I'm not a big fan of writing papers or reading books. I'm not actually a very good theologian, I guess, then. But... But this is something I had to do for one of my professors, was to write a paper on a guy that I absolutely disagree with from top to bottom about just about everything he says. The man's name was Bertrand Russell. He's an atheist of the 20th century. In the early 1900s, he's coming up with all these skeptical generation, and he comes forward with this idea that man's wisdom, man's brilliance is going to be able to transform this suffering world into a utopia. And he grabs hold of ideas like eugenics and will will weed out the, the people with bad genetics and will only let the stronger races come and we can do this and engineer this. And science will make a utopia here. So in the early part of his rights, early part of his life, he writes this. He says, nature, even human nature will cease more and more to be an absolute datum. More and more it will become what scientific manipulation has made it. Science can, if it chooses, enable our grandchildren to live the good life. And this poor, tragic man lives through the night, early 20th centuries thinking we can create a utopia. We don't need God anymore. He's just a fairy tale friend in the sky for the weak. And this poor man goes through the 20th century looking at what man's wisdom can do. And he sees communistic, atheistic regimes slaughter a hundred million people. He sees technology transformed into atomic bombs and devotes his life to anti-nuclear proliferation. His whole life he thought there was going to come this great utopia, and at the end of his life he writes an autobiography called What I Have Lived For. It's heavy. 
This passage I'm about to read to you from his book makes the book of Ecclesiastes look like an upper. <laughs> Listen to this. It's, it's heart-wrenching. He says this, echoes of cries of pain reverberate in my heart. I long to alleviate evil, but I cannot, and I too suffer. But now all this, all my hopes, all this dream that man can bring a utopia, all this has shrunk to be no more than my own reflection in the windows of the soul through which I look out upon the night of nothingness. No dungeon was ever constructed so dark and narrow as that in which the shadow physics of our time imprisons us. For every prisoner has believed that outside his walls a free world existed, some hope, some heaven, some utopia, but now the prison has become the whole universe. This is it. There's darkness without, and when I die, there will be darkness within. There's no splendor, no vastness anywhere, only triviality, suffering for a moment, and then nothing. Why live in such a world? Why even die? Everyone agrees this world is broken. And the crazy thing about Christianity is that it tells you the suffering is not to be ignored. It's not an illusion of the mind. It's not necessarily God pounding on you. It's not just random. It's a gift. What? Suffering? A gift? Yeah. Suffering. A gift. Let me explain what I mean by that. just want to explain a couple of things that suffering does. And you'll see it. You'll recognize it. Suffering reveals your weakness. Can you imagine if you had a life where everything went right, where there was no suffering? What do you think your relationship with God would be like? Non-existent. Suffering comes to your doorstep and makes you, it reveals to you, that you're too weak to walk alone. Like Paul realizes when Christ comes to him and Paul is begging to be relieved from his suffering and Christ comes and says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Suffering leads you to cling hold of Christ. Suffering generates genuine intimacy You think of like people that go into the army and the first thing that the army does is throw them into basic training. And no matter who you talk to that's a higher official in the army, they'll tell you this. Yeah, it's important that they go through basic training to get fit, to learn procedure and protocol and this, that, and the other. But the most important thing that happens in basic training is you have men who are coming from all over the nation, perfect and absolute strangers, come together in one spot and go through two weeks of absolute hellish torment. And that common suffering together will lead them out into a battlefield where they will lay down their lives for each other because they've suffered together. Think of the the goofy college freshman that goes off and shows up at a university and thinks, I want to belong to a fraternity. And he says, all right, I'm going to join. And he gets put in pledge. What do they do right out of the gates? They throw him through this thing called pledge week and hazing and all this stuff where they do terrible things that I can't even preach to you from the pulpit, at least some of the stuff I've heard from my brothers. But they force them to go through this common suffering and affliction. Why? So that they will be like brothers in the fraternity. Can you imagine how close-knit the church would be if we were eager to suffer together? If we were eager to come to other people and their affliction and lighten the load by taking their suffering on as our own? Brothers, sisters, suffering is evangelistic. Martin Luther has this famous line where he says that the gods of this world are riches, pleasure, and pride. Read into that, by the way. Riches, pleasure, pride. 
time, talent, treasure. That is the gods of this world. People worship money. They worship leisure. They worship fame and pride and reputation. What do you show this world when you take the things that are most sacred to them, money, their God, and you give it away to serve your God's purpose? It's evangelistic. People look at that and they go, how can you do that? Or fame, power, when you humbly walk after God, not looking for a reputation yourself, and you say, I don't want it. Man, that's powerful. And I'm telling you that the way that you live in suffering sends a massive, massive message to the world. A Christian can rejoice in bondage because Christ is worth more than freedom. A Christian can rejoice in pain because Christ is worth more than comfort. The Christian can rejoice in poverty because Christ is worth more than riches. A Christian can rejoice in alienation and loneliness. Why? Because Christ is worth more than the world's acceptance. The Christian can rejoice in sickness because Christ is worth more than health. The Christian can rejoice even in the prospect of death because Christ is worth more than your life and He's defeated death for you. And when you take all of your treasures and you let them slip out of your hands for the sake of the gospel, all those treasures come back to you. It's evangelistic. And it amplifies your life. It's easy for me to get up here and on Thanksgiving weekend to say this to you guys. Guys, And girls, I want you to give thanks in all things. And you're like, yeah, that's a nice biblical message. We should be thankful. Yay. Way to go, Sam. Give thanks. But now let me say, if I came up here and I had third degree burns covering head to toe, if I had stage four cancer, if I had just lost my family in a terrible accident, And I stood before you and I still said, give thanks in all things. It's a totally different message. John Piper wrote, he had prostate, was diagnosed with prostate cancer. And on the eve before he went into surgery, he wrote this article that's just stunning. Even the title of it is stunning. The title of it is, Don't Waste Your Cancer. What? This is what he means. God, you've laid this affliction at my feet. The world's watching me as a follower of you. Help me not to waste this opportunity to show them you are enough. You've gotten some phone call of tragic news. You're burying or carrying some burden Use that. God will amplify His grace to others through your suffering. You'll show them the sufficiency of Christ. I, uh, I love my students. I teach ninth and 10th grade Bible over at Westminster Academy. And I want to share, and I've got permission from both of these students to, to tell their story because they amaze me. One of them's name is Autumn, and she is a wonderful girl, smiling, happy, giggling, amazing young girl. You look at her and you think, this is somebody who is just genuinely happy, always running around, laughing, giggling, telling jokes, being the butt of jokes, and you just with a smile. I get a, a text one day that, that Autumn, or an email, that Autumn is in a hospital because of, a, of an overdose, intentionally. Sinks me. I'm thinking to myself, man, how can somebody who outwardly is so filled with joy be so wrecked on the inside? And when she comes out, the community comes around her and love on her and build her up and encourage her 
And in the process, she's taken on a boyfriend. Not good influence. And people come to her and they say, Autumn, you need to devote your affections to Christ, not him. And she listens. She calls him up and says to the, to the young man, I need to give my affections to Christ. He needs to fix me. He calls her back later, says, I can't live without you. And I hear the story, and I'm wrecked. What is this poor girl going to think? She's going to blame herself. She's going she's to be absolutely beside herself. What can I do? And a couple days go by, and I see her face through the window of my door, and she's walking to the door, and I panic, and I think to myself, what am I going to say? What am I going to do? She's just faced this tragedy. How do I explain this? How do I explain that God allows this, and everything's going through my mind, and she opens the door, and she runs to me, gives me a hug, buries her face, and through tears says, Mr. K, I know that he's good. I know that he's good. Talk about suffering amplifying the goodness of God. Or another student, Emily, who in eighth grade, right when I become a teacher, I walk in, she loses her mom. And I think to myself, an eighth grader, how in the world could they bear that burden? And I go to the funeral and I'm thinking to myself, and then I see that she's speaking and I'm like, man alive. And she gets up there and she praises God through tears. And as a church that's packed is watching this girl, she's praising God, saying, you make everything glorious. Man, talk about suffering, amplifying the beauty of Christ. You will suffer, but invest those sufferings in Christ. And as followers of Christ... You can find joy in your suffering by focusing on the beauty of Christ. And that's what this whole thing is. When we see the story of the transfiguration start picking up in Luke 9, it says this. It starts this way. Now, about eight days after these sayings, in other words, this is connected. Jesus has told him all this stuff that's hard to swallow. You're going to have to lose your life to find it. You're going to have to carry your cross. And then it's like, okay, now after saying these things, he takes him to the mountain. It's like... Now for the punchline, in other words. And he took with him Peter, John, and James, and they went up on a mountain to pray. The other gospels tell us it's a very, very high mountain. And Peter, James, and John, that's his inner circle, his closest apostles, the guys that are always with him, right? And they go up onto this mountain, and that's Mount Hermon. And every other mountain in comparison, it dwarfs. It's 9,200 feet high. Its name literally in Hebrew means the holy mountain. It's snow-capped through most of the year, and they go there, and they're climbing on Mount Hermon. When we took the Israel trip, we got to go and look at Mount Hermon. So anyway, they're up there next, and it says, as he was praying, so he goes up on the mountain to pray, but as he's praying, the appearance of his face was altered. The Greek word heteros, changed, different. Matthew says his face shines like the sun. Anyway, he's up there. His face is altered. His clothes become bright and white. His face is transfigured, and his clothes become white as light. And behold, two men are talking with him, Moses and Elijah, the two greatest prophets of the Old Testament, the two famous guys, right, are appearing with him in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Think about this for a minute, that you have Moses and Elijah appearing with Christ in glory. How do they receive that glory? Because of what he's about to do. Their glory or their suffering to come depends on Jesus' faithfulness to carry out what he's talking to them about right here. Because he says that it says that he spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So Jesus is in the midst of all of his glory. His clothes are shining like the sun, face or like light and face shining like the sun. He's in the midst of all his glory. And what is he talking about? I've got to go to my cross. 
Wow. I mean, the whole lead up to this exchange, Jesus has been telling people that the sign of Jonah is coming. I'm going to have to be buried in the earth for three days, like, just like Jonah. He's fed the 5,000 and the people have come to him, John tells us, saying that they wanted to make him king by force and he flees from it. Why? Because Jesus recognizes that the crown of glory only comes after the crown of thorns. And he comes to his disciples and he's teaching them this. And he says, who do men say that I am? And they're saying, oh, some say you're a prophet. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. And he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, great. All right, well, let me tell you what that means. I'm going to have to be handed over. I'm going to have to suffer. I'm going to have to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to have to face nails and persecution. I'm going to die. But on the third day, I will conquer death. And Peter says, no, I will not let you suffer. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. In other words, nobody could get between Jesus and his cross. Why? Jesus had his glory. He's already got glory. Why does he need to go to the cross? So you can have yours. And here they are talking about what's to come. And then we go on from here. Next slide. And it says, now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. Here you go. This inner circle amazes me, right? Peter, James, and John, these are the three guys that go with him when he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, remember? And he's so overwhelmed with grief at what he's facing with the cross. And he cries out to the Father saying, I don't want this cup. I don't want to drink this cup of wrath. But your will be done. And he's falling on his face and he's in absolute agony. It says that he is grieved in his heart to the point of death. And what are Peter, James, and John doing at the Garden of Gethsemane? Then you've got this scene where here's the Lord in the flesh shining like the sun, clothes that are beaming white, Moses and Elijah appearing in glory. And what are they doing? But it says that when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men with him. And Peter, who is absolutely famous for foot and mouth disease, next slide, it says, as the men were parting from him, Peter says to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, literally tabernacles in the Greek. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he's saying. You know, Peter's good at this. And then as he was saying these things, right as soon as Peter's like, we need to build tabernacles for all three, boom, God shows up. God the Father comes down in a cloud, overshadows them, and they're afraid as they enter into the cloud. And a voice comes out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And it's like God saying, no, 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 not Elijah, not Moses. This is my son. Listen to him. And those words, listen to him, are profound. Because if you go back in the Old Testament, there was a prophecy that came in Deuteronomy where Moses promises this, the Lord your God will raise up a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, You shall listen to him. And here's God saying, there he is. Listen to him. This is the one that all of redemptive history has been building up to. He's the one. Listen to him. And if you hear this story, you hear this story, right? And everything, it's like, you know, there's there's the old movie, Top Gun, When I was a little boy, this was the end-all, be-all movie, and it starts, there's this really famous scene, and I know this is going to be cheesy, and I don't care, but where Tom Cruise's character goes into the bar, and he's kind of an arrogant guy, and he's trying to pick up the the good-looking girl, so he gets his little crew of friends, and they come, and they do the old, 
You never close your eyes. And they start singing, and the friends are behind them going, ba-doom, doom, doom, doom. And when we're kids, everybody's emulating and following that. And then at the end of the movie, everything's kind of falling apart. The relationship's gone between he and this woman, but the woman shows back up. He's sitting at a bar on a stool, and you see her hand put the quarter into the jukebox, and that same song comes on, and you see his face go. And he gets up and goes and looks for her. We've heard this song before. Why why Moses and Elijah? It's a curious choice. These are the two men who go to Sinai to catch a word from God. Faces shining like the sun. Gee, that sounds a lot like Moses on Sinai. Clouds descending on mountains. People falling down in reverential fear. Sounds familiar. People talking about how to construct tabernacles. Gee, that happened on Sinai. And it's like God is saying this. Next slide. It's just, and as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. This is what God is getting at. It's not Moses this time. The Word of God is not coming to you on stone tablets, and it's not Elijah. It's not coming through earthquakes or fires like they expect. It's not coming through a still small voice. My Word is Him. Listen to Him. You don't need tablets anymore. You've got the Word of God. Him. Listen to Him. And Peter, is so, when the disciples hear this, they fall on their face, and Jesus comes and touches them and says, rise. Rise. Don't be afraid. It's the language of resurrection. He comes to you today saying, rise. Don't be afraid. And this whole encounter for Peter has, is so profound. Listen to what Peter says. He says, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty for we were with him on the holy mountain. So here's Peter. He's giving the whole purpose statement for why he's out here suffering, laying his life down, eventually going to be crucified upside down, giving everything for the Lord. And this is his reasoning. I've seen who he is. I've seen this guy's glory. I've seen it with my own eyes. And he could have pointed, all the things he could have, he could have said, I've seen this guy walk on water. <laughs> I've seen this guy calm storms. I've seen this guy defeat death. And he goes and he points out, I've seen his glory. It changed me. And the resurrection sealed it for me. I've seen this guy. He's amazing. I'll follow him with everything I've got. Right? So let's look at the transfigure oh yeah yeah. when when the voice had been spoken jesus was found alone and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they'd seen and the reason for that matthew tells us is that jesus commanded them tell no one of the vision until the son has been son of man has been raised from the dead and here it is this is an odd command to find in scripture because good news go preach it go tell everybody you know and then here jesus is and it's like he's he's coming he's not that all of attractive man isaiah 53 says he doesn't have much beauty but he takes him on a mountain and goes and just glory and then he says don't tell anyone until after the resurrection why he wants you and me to understand suffering must come before glory so let's look at the transfiguration Jesus goes to a mountain to pray. Let this story visualize in your mind. Jesus goes to a mountain to pray. His inner circle is awakened. He's transfigured into absolute beauty. He's cloaked in God's glory. His garments are shining bright white. His face shines like the sun. He's flanked by the two greatest prophets of the Old Testament, 
his disciples right in front of him fall on their face and fear at the Son of God. The Father booms his voice in pleasure and tells everybody, listen to him. Such a sight. This is what our Lord deserves. But it's not where he stops. He moves on from this mountain. And for you, he goes to another mountain. Go back a slide. He goes to another mountain to pray. Father, take this cup from me. I don't want to drink your wrath, but I will. Because I'm going to follow after you for the sake of my bride. And his inner circle sleeps as he prays. And he's not transfigured into stunning beauty. He is disfigured, marred more than any man. Men have taken rods and staff and beat him in the face and punched him in the face and made his appearance so disfigured and so disgusting that it says that you couldn't recognize him as human and is not cloaked in God's glory. He's drenched in your sin. And his garments aren't bright and white. They've been stripped away from him to where he's left in shame. And his face isn't shining like the sun. The whole land goes dark and eclipse. And he's not flanked by the great prophets, Moses and Elijah. He's flanked by common criminals. And his disciples aren't falling on their face in reverential fear because they've just heard, this is my son. Instead, you've got people walking by the religious leaders and they're hurling insults upon him, mocking him for claiming to be the son of God. And the father is not voicing his pleasure, but pouring out his wrath for you. He's not telling the crowds, Listen to him. The Father himself is turning a deaf ear. All this for you. Jesus deserved the glory of the transfiguration, but took the agony of the cross so that you who deserve the agony of the cross could have the transfiguration. You can find joy in your suffering by remembering that. And lastly, when we invest our sufferings into, in Christ, he calls us to share in his glory. Let's look at what Peter says. It's, it's instructive. As much as he's a goofball, As much as he gets it wrong, I want you to hear what he says. Let's look at the next slide. It says, as the men were parting from him, Peter says to Jesus, Moses and Elijah are going, and Peter pipes up with this great idea. Hey, it's good that we're here. Let's make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. What are tabernacles? Tabernacles are the dwelling place of God. And as goofy as this statement is from Peter, let's speak to you a minute. Peter's looking up at the mountain. He sees God in the flesh, glorified, Moses and Elijah. And he thinks they all deserve tabernacles. Why? Because Elijah and Moses are cloaked in the glory of God. And Peter is so stunned by their appearance, he thinks they all get tabernacles. He looks at Moses and Elijah and thinks, They must be divine. We need three tabernacles. This should blow you away because guess what? If you're Christ, that's your fate. Presbyterians have a great mission statement. Westminster Confession of Faith, it says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. 
And then God gives us his purpose statement for man. Let this saturate in your heart. From the beginning, God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. And he called you to this through our gospel. Listen to this. So that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our God is so good. He's entitled to every ounce, every morsel of glory that possibly exists in this world. And yet he's so gracious. He shares it with his people. There are three people on the Mount of Transfiguration and another one who sees Jesus' glory. Peter, James, and John see it here. And the Apostle Paul sees the glory of God on the road to Damascus. James is killed by Herod, but three of them write books of the New, the New Testament. Listen to what they say is your future because he went to Calvary. Peter claimed that believers are to become partakers of the glory that is to be revealed. You're going to share it. He says that you are going to, that you are partakers of the divine nature. The Apostle John, next one, says this, Beloved, we're, we're God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when, when He appears, we'll be like Him, because we'll see Him as He is. I love this verse, because this is what it's saying. We're God's children now. We stumble, we make all kinds of mistakes, but we are sealed with Him. There is no disowning. He doesn't walk away from his children, but you're not yet who you're going to be. But when you see him, when you see him, you will see him as so unbelievably beautiful and glorious and awesome. You won't even be able to resist becoming like him. He's that awesome. You will be like him. And last, the Apostle Paul promises that Jesus will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. Stop and think on that. Stop and think on how good God has to be to share that with you. And, you know... I'm probably a bit jumbled in my mind here, but a lot of times I think, how in the world could a perfectly wise God choose to die for somebody as awful, as wretched, as self-centered, as sinful, as people like us? And we don't understand what's going on. Burst your bubble. Jesus did not come and die and suffer agony so that you could live forever as you are. Jesus came and died at Calvary because he knows how dazzling and amazing and radiant and glorious his atonement and resurrection will make you. And when God sees in his infinite mind what you will become, he has set the price tag of such beauty at the cost of his own son. That's your future. God's son is your price tag. Imagine what he's going to do with you. To be worthy, to be the bride of the most high, infinite God, you? Yeah. Not because of anything you've done, but because of how amazing he is. And then I just love this. Just as the cherry on top, God takes John, the apostle, takes him up into a dream and shows him what heaven's like, shows him the final judgment day, shows him redemption. And how does he describe the bride? He says, her clothing is bright and clean. Sound familiar? Goes on and it says, an angel came to John and said, Come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in a spirit to a mountain great and high. Sound familiar? And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, the bride of God coming out of heaven from God. And it shone with the glory of God. 
and its brilliance, literally foster, meaning luminary or star even, was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And what God is showing John, what you saw on that mountain is your fate over here. You will have your transfiguration. Your clothing will shine bright as light. Your face will shine with the glory of God. You will be like a luminary. Wow. This generation and the church, I got to say, I grew up thinking of heaven as this, more or less. Once I got beyond the idea that heaven wasn't clouds and angels playing harps, I started thinking of heaven as like this place where you go and God's like, all right, the story of redemption's done. Get in my recliner, pull up my feet. You guys sit in your pews, praise me forever. And there's something in a sinful heart that looks at that and goes, "Mm, really? That's not heaven. That's not heaven. You know what I love the fool? You find this in all the prophets. You find this in the book of Revelation. You know what God does when his bride finally comes into her glory? The idea is that he gets up off his throne, goes to her, and wipes away her tears. Your God, who is ferociously holy, unbelievably glorious, is still tender, loves his bride beyond measure, and you think when we're in heaven, is it going to get boring? Well, let me, let me say this. God's done all this like he says in his word so that he can share his glory with you. And let me just say, you're going to be a finite cup forever. You'll never be like God in his infinity. But let me tell you, in your finite cup, the infinite God of the universe with his infinite attributes like love and mercy and glory and holiness will pour into your cup. And let me tell you, if you've ever worshipped God through a veil of sin and with a fallen heart, and you've ever worshipped God and through one crack of your sinned lens, you've seen God for one slice of one aspect of one of His attributes, and it's blown you away to tears or given you goosebumps or made you just want to shout with praise, let me tell you, on the day when that veil of sin is yanked off and you're glorified and your heart is made pure and you see Him for who He is and your finite cup is sitting there and the infinite God of the universe says, it's about time and pours His infinite love and His infinite majesty and glory and everything into your cup. The idea that you will ever get bored in heaven is ridiculous because just when you've traced out and thought in your mind, man, this God is pretty loving. Here comes some more infinity. You will never cease to be amazed and delighted and in bliss when you're with him. That is your future. That is your hope. And when you look at a God who would lay everything aside so that he could show you that and give you that and dote on you for all eternity like that, are we kidding that we would hold on to our little petty things in this life? That we would refuse to suffer loss for such a promise? Jesus gives everything to show us what godly love looks like. And then he says this, love each other as you love yourselves. What you do for the least of these, my brothers, you do for me. That in and of itself should make us so eager to run out, divorce ourselves from all the little petty things that we treasure in this life, give them away because they're rubbish by comparison. And love each other because that's what God calls us to. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Weight of Glory, I love this book, has a passage of this book that is profound. And he says it better than I could. So I just want to read it to you. It may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. We've talked about it. It's amazing. It might be too much to just focus on that. But he says this. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible small g gods and goddesses. 
to remember that the dullest, the most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you'd be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as if you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics, all time, all talent, all treasure. There are no ordinary people. You've never met a mere mortal. I love this church because this church gets it. This church goes out into our community and looks at the downtrodden and the less fortunate and wants to pour into them. It looks at their suffering and wants to enter into their suffering with them so that with Christ's power, we might lift them up to an inheritance they can't conceive of. And the whole leverage your life idea is let's be a church that loves our God so much that we live with open hands for the people that he loves. If you haven't filled out your commitment card, if you haven't settled in your mind whether you're capable of tithing, if you don't volunteer, if you're not generous with other people, if you're not loving sacrificially to people around you, that's what he calls you to, to be like him who gives everything. I love this church. We can do amazing things if we focus on his beauty and we're willing to invest our sufferings in him. Our Father and our God, Lord, I thank you so much for your beauty. I thank you for the hope that we stand to inherit the glory that you deserve every ounce of, but that you share freely with us. Father, help us not to be the recipients of such a great promise. Help us not to hoard it as if it's meant only for us, but to live as you have called us, to love one another, to share this good news, to go into the world and give people hope and a future for your name's sake. Lord, lead us to be people who see everything in this world as rubbish compared to you. In Christ's name, amen.